Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. I want to thank the Reflections Ensemble. Oh, there we go. Didn't know if that was going to play. You can stop it now. I want to thank the Reflections. It's hard to find good help, right? My favorite time, is, I'm trying to remember James, I, I said something negative. I don't know. Was it something negative? There you go. And James cut my mic off. That was great. It was funny. No, I just, uh, I really appreciate having the, uh, the uh, Reflections Ensemble here with us. And, and I'm remiss in mentioning uh, the pastor at First Baptist Church of Montgomery as Jay Wolf. Uh, Jay is uh, somebody that is a great mentor to me. And not only was uh, a, the pastor of me when, when I was a kid, uh, when I was attending church there, but also uh, was an employer and pastor of me when I was the student pastor there, and um, yet I know you feel the same way about Jay as I do. I just love Jay to pieces. I, I love Jay so much I named a kid after him, so that's, that's a lot, you know, and seriously, when you name a child after somebody, that's a great honor, and so every time I, I think of my son, I always think about Jay Wolf and very appreciative of him and thankful that he let you come and lead worship. Who's leading worship at First Montgomery today? No, no, Okay. Y'all didn't cancel it, did you? That would be bad. Okay, <laughs> that would be funny. Um, well, it's great to have, uh, have uh, that's right, grateful to have you guys here today. If you will, you can open up your Bible to Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48 this morning. We're going to be talking about the greatest. Sports fans, obviously, when you think about the greatest, you probably turn your attention to Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is generally referred to as the greatest. Ali, by the way, by the way used to tell everyone uh, that he was the greatest. And of course, now we generally think that, but Muhammad Ali was not really considered the greatest, especially when he was a good bit younger. He really sort of became the greatest over the last 40 years if you remember some of the catchphrases that Muhammad Ali used to say, he would float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. That's right. Ali would dodge a punch while he used a, a very unconventional style. He, instead of holding his gloves up, he would often hang his gloves low, kind of taunting the opponent to come close to him, and then he would hit him with a fierce jab. In 1964, Muhammad Ali was far, far from the greatest. He was an underdog. Hardly anybody believed that Muhammad Ali was going to win this fight, but he ended up winning the heavyweight championship of the world. And then he lost the title and had to win it back, and chances are one of the greatest fights ever, the rumble in the jungle against the then champion George Foreman. Now, growing up as a kid, George Foreman always, to me, sold electric grills. 
And I realized, I mean, I looked at George Foreman, I was like, ain't no way that guy could beat Muhammad Ali. No way. But apparently, George was a fairly good fighter. Ali was the world heavyweight champ yet again. Then he lost the, the title to another unbelievable fighter by the name of Leon Spinks. Leon Spinks. But then he won it back from Spinks a year later. Muhammad Ali is, by the way, the only heavyweight fighter to win the heavyweight title three times. Again, sort of solidifying his place in history. Now, as a kid growing up, I remember my senior year of high school. You remember when the Olympics were in Atlanta? And that was one of those sort of stamped in my mind memories of seeing Muhammad Ali carrying up the Olympic torch and lighting the Olympic cauldron. I, I can remember Muhammad Ali. Remember his hand was shaking. He was suffering so badly from Parkinson's disease. And while Ali's story is incredibly inspiring and, and for some of us might stir some emotions in our heart, what I realize is what the world calls great and what the Lord calls great are two totally separate things. The definitions of greatness according to the world and the definition of greatness according to God are very different things. While Muhammad Ali won three heavyweight titles, I realize that God doesn't really care about those things. God doesn't care about trophies. He doesn't really care about titles. He doesn't really care about those things that the world tends to value. So what does the world value? What, what is the definition of greatness in the world's eyes? Well, we generally think people who are rich are great. By the way, we saw this in the media just this past week. Did you see the, the celebrities who were uh, paying and bribing their way for their kids to enter into a university that they hadn't actually uh, deserved to be in? Did you see that? Being rich must be great, and yet not in the eyes of the Lord. We think people who have great jobs and are at the top of their career, that they must be great. We think of people who win big contests. How many of you watch The Voice? My family watches The Voice. We've watched American Idol before, and you, you see the confetti raining down, and you think, wow, they must be great because they won contests. While God desires good things in our life, I believe that he's more concerned with our character than he is concerned about our trophies. While he enables us to do great things, what God really wants us to do is his will. What he really wants us to accomplish is not that we gather trophies that will gather dust, but that we practice faith and hope and love and that those things, the faith, hope, and love, will never become dusty or useless. So this morning, I want to ask you a, an introductory question, and I want you to answer it honestly in your own heart. Are you desiring greatness? Are you looking for greatness? Are you looking for greatness the way the world would define it? Or are you looking for greatness the way the Lord would want you to have it? And see, here's the thing. If you're here today, let's, let's all kind of operate on this idea that we're all searching for God's greatness. So if we are, then we need to go the Jesus way. We need to go the Jesus way. Now, Jesus teaches us, by the way, in Luke chapter 9, how we can achieve the status of greatness in God's eyes. Now, I do want to 
set up a little bit of a context for you. Luke chapter 9, to me, is one of the most action-packed chapters in certainly all of Luke, but maybe even particularly in all of the Bible. At the start, we see Jesus sending out his disciples, going two by two, village to village, community by community, and he's telling them to preach the good news of the gospel. And then he also gives them the extra reference of not only do I want you to preach the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at, is at hand, but you can also heal and you can also drive out demons. These guys were tasked with a pretty large opportunity. And so they do. They go back and they begin to preach and teach. And, and if you continue to read through Luke chapter 9, you'll see that Jesus performs one of his most stunning miracles. He feeds the 5,000 using just a little bit of food and a whole lot of faith. And Jesus feeds thousands of people. Now we know that that number would swell if were counted the women and the children that were there. Only the men were counted. So it could have swelled to some 20,000 people. Peter also makes a jaw-dropping confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, a confession, by the way, that had yet been made and no doubt left the disciples and all those who heard it rather speechless. And Jesus blesses his disciples with the knowledge that in order to follow him, they would have to take up their cross daily. We have the transfiguration. That's where we were a couple weeks ago. The characters of Elijah and Moses are introduced into the New Testament along with Jesus. And then last week we saw Jesus rebuke a demon out of a child. And, and to me, as I began to read Luke chapter 9, I really think that it could be really the foundation, if you will. If, if this is all we had about Christ, is this is, if this is all we had to read, just Luke chapter 9, it would lay a pretty amazing foundation for Jesus being the Messiah, for Jesus being the Son of God. If this is all we had, we would have some pretty significant questions to ask and answers that we would hope to receive. Recall last week, when Peter and James and John, they exited the mountain and encountered the other disciples. Remember that the disciples were defeated and depleted. Remember, they, they couldn't drive out the demon from that young boy. They were, they were faking it, if you will, till Jesus making it. <laughs> they were hoping Jesus would come. They were operating under their own power, and their own power wasn't enough to drive out that demon. But Jesus rebukes both the disciples and he rebukes the demon and both leave. What's interesting is the conversation that breaks out afterward, which is where we are this morning. This conversation that breaks out afterwards, after Jesus rebukes and drives out this demon. Jesus predicts his death. And the disciples, instead of wrestling with this prediction, began to argue with one another as to who would be the greatest. Who among us is going to be the greatest? And that's where we pick up. So this morning, let's read just a handful of verses, verses 46 through 48 of Luke chapter 9. And this morning, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can read along with me, or certainly we have it on the screens. It says this, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one 
who will be the greatest. This morning, I, I want to help us to understand that Jesus reveals that greatness is found in three places. Three places. One, you can fill in this blank. He reveals that greatness is found in serving our fellow man. Serving our fellow man. Now understand, I'm not talking about a social program. I'm not talking about Meals on Wheels. Although Meals on Wheels is great and serves a lot of people. I'm talking about serving your fellow man to an end. Meaning that we serve our fellow man in order that the door would be open for us to share the gospel. That, that's the whole point. We, we serve so that people will see Jesus living in our lives and they become so curious about what makes us different that we begin to start a conversation. We begin to have a relationship with one another so that I can tell people about Jesus. I'll be honest with you, here in a, in a few months, our, our youth choir is going to be heading down to Miami. I think, Ed, you guys have been to Miami before on, a, on some youth choir trips. I'll be honest with you, if all our youth choir does is go down there and sing, if all of our youth choir does is go to a couple soup kitchens, but we never get around to actually sharing the gospel, if we never get around to telling someone about Jesus, then it really is just a big fat waste of time, and it's a big fat waste of money. It's a big fat waste of our resources, God's resources. And so this morning... I want us to understand that serving our fellow man does not mean that we open up a social program, that we're here to do more than that. One of my favorite historical events to read about and to watch television about is, is the Titanic. Oh, man, I can just sit here and watch hours of programming on the Titanic. I find the story of the Titanic very fascinating. On that night, there were lived out stories of tremendous self-sacrifice, but also tremendous selfishness. One of my favorite stories about that night were about the men who served as the engineers of the, the Titanic, and, and many of us have never heard their stories. After the Titanic struck the iceberg and began to sink, these men, these engineers, stayed at their post and gave support to the ship. It, it was their dedication that allowed for the electricity to be generated in the ship long after the ship began to sink. And it allowed for the captain and the, and, and the crewmen to be able to get out distress calls so that other ships would know that the Titanic was sinking and that people were going to lose their lives. These men were underpaid. They lived underneath the deck. During the entirety of the trip, there are writings that tell us that the engineers actually never came up above deck, that for the entirety of the trip, they lived below deck. They never saw sunlight because they were working so hard to keep the Titanic rolling, to keep it sailing. They were never seen by the passengers, and for the most part, they were completely forgotten about for the duration of the voyage, yet they were the silent heroes that saved countless lives. What an incredible act of service. They laid down their lives for people that they had never seen, children that they never met, and women that would never know their names. They put the needs of complete strangers ahead of their own. Uh, writings will tell us that these men knew that they were going to die. 
And yet they never left their post. They realized the importance of their job. By the way, the, the Greek word being used here for the greatest is magas. It's where we get our word mega. <laughs> and really what the disciples are arguing here amongst themselves, and of course Jesus knowing their heart, they're arguing amongst themselves which of us is going to be the biggest. Which of us is going to be the biggest, the greatest? Which of us is going to have the most power? Which, by the way, is an odd conversation to have considering that nine of them were complete failures languishing away at the bottom of the mountain without Jesus, James, Peter, and John. And then, of course, Peter, uh, of course, rebuke, or excuse me, Jesus rebukes Peter at the top of the mountain saying, no, Peter, we can't stay here. We have to go to the bottom of the mountain. Peter, James, and John, by the way, knew they weren't the greatest. They had just witnessed Jesus on the mountain with uh, Moses and Elijah and the audible voice of God telling them, this is my son. And yet they still had the gall to ask the question, which of us is going to be the greatest? Friend, let me tell you the greatest is, is Jesus. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to beat Jesus. Nobody's going to kick Jesus off of his throne. Not me, not you, not anybody else. Now, we can argue among ourselves in our, in our humanness, in our sinfulness, in our fleshliness, which one of us is going to be the greatest. But I'll tell you the answer, it doesn't matter. <laughs> because Jesus is the greatest. If we want to have real greatness, not the kind that the world gives, but the kind that God recognizes, we need to learn to serve. Now that goes against the grain of what our society teaches. We've always had the desire to be first and we've always had the desire to be served. We want it our way. We want our will. We think our needs are the most important. And Jesus said that he who seeks to be the greatest needs to become the least and must become the servant of all. One of my favorite characters is the character of Mother Teresa. I read a story about Mother Teresa the other day. It was really interesting. There's a story about Mother Teresa and a visitor had come to her hospital in Calcutta and she saw Mother Teresa uh, cleaning the cuts and bruises of a, of a frail and dying AIDS patient. And the, and the visitor admitted to, to uh, Mother Teresa, I would never do that. <laughs> Mother Teresa, I would never do what you're doing in a million years. And Mother Teresa answered, neither would I, but for Jesus, I will do it for nothing. I wouldn't do it either, but for Jesus, I'll do it for nothing. Friend, is that your attitude today? Are you expecting the applause? Are you hungering for the acclaim? Or would you do it all for Jesus, for free. So this morning, I asked the question, where are you serving? In staff meeting just this past week, our staff gathered together to pray. I looked around the room and I began to, to think on, of all the things that are going on here at Eastern Shore Baptist Church and the many various ways that our people are serving the Lord. I thought about the men and women who work tirelessly, by the way, to remodel our chapel. By the way, if you haven't been in there, I would highly recommend it. It looks fantastic. I thought about Bryant. Oh, I love Bryant. I thought about Bryant as he helped an African-American Vietnam veteran who walked his way into our church a few Sundays ago. And Bryant has helped him in such amazing ways. This man was homeless. He was living out of his car. 
And Bryant, with the resources that you've given to us, Bryant said, no, 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 no. We don't want you to live out of your car. You've given too much to your country. And we love Jesus too much to let that happen. And so Bryant found a way to get a roof over his head. I remembered our student minister, Josh, who regularly opens the gym to the kids of our community, both white and black and everybody in between, all gathering here, one, to play basketball. But guess what, Josh? It's not a social program, is it? We're not doing it just to be friendly. We're doing it in hopes that we can share Christ with them. I thought about our children's ministry and the, just yesterday, our, our children's ministry went on a children's choir tour led by Marcia Scarborough and Will and so many others. They had volunteers. James went. Tony went. All of our children's choir teachers went. They went to all these great nursing homes and assisted living facilities, sharing the love of Christ to people, people, by the way, who are often forgotten about, but are not forgotten about by us. I thought about Beverly Fox and Kay Cassabry as they worked to give shelter this week, by the way, starting today, to homeless women with children that'll be staying right here on our church campus starting tonight. Last time we did it was at Christmas time, and I was, had the joy of being a part of that. There's so many things. I thought about our deacons. I thought about Dwayne Kennard and, and all of our deacons as they gave the Act 6 banquet. The Act 6 banquet is a beautiful thing because it's where our deacons minister to our widows and widowers. We had almost 100 people attend that banquet. This was Friday night. I also thought about several men in our church. Remember this, the, the, the thank you note from Francis? We had several men that went to Francis's home where Henry was living and their kitchen needed some remodeling. It needed some renovation. And these men went in and gutted the kitchen, re-outfitted it, and made it to where it was useful. And do you know how much they charged? Nothing. Zero. Why did they do that? Because they want to serve. They want to help somebody. Why? Because they want Jesus to be seen in their lives. I thought about the women who come and sew bags for elderly people to put on their walkers and blankets for newborn babies. I thought about all the folks that teach Sunday school. By, by the way, you're unsung heroes if you're teaching Sunday school. You give up hours out of your week, hours out of your, your work schedule to study, to prepare, to teach, and rarely do you ever get thanked. But thank you for doing that. And what about our ESBCU teachers that do the exact same thing? And I know I'm just really scratching the surface. We've got a lot of people in our church that long to serve, but I guarantee you this, there's some of you that need to get in the game. There's some of you that need to say, you know what, I've been pew sitting for way too long. I've got too many talents, too many gifts, and now it's time for the Lord to use me. Serve King Jesus today, and when you serve others, you serve Jesus. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus tells us that even the Son of Man came, what? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus reveals that greatness is found in serving our fellow man, but it's also found in Roman numeral two in shifting our mindset, changing the way we think. It's about changing the way we think. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
In our New Testament lesson, Jesus invited a noisy kid over to where he was sitting with his disciples. He puts his arm around this child and says something in the lines of Stuart that sounds like this. You know something? If you can recognize the rights of this little child, if you can welcome and receive what I teach you, then you'll be doing the will of God. And then you'll be coming close to greatness. And then you'll be a hero. And whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not just receive me, but he also receives the one who sent me. By the way, it's in the context of our society, it's very difficult for us to understand what Jesus is talking about because our society sees children as something to be valued, which, by the way, they are. Clearly, they are something to be valued. We often dote on our children. We pay for our children. We clothe our children. We go far beyond what our children sometimes even ask us to do because we love them so much. Children are a very cherished part of our society, but they weren't in the ancient world. Children were not a part of the cherished aspect of society. By the time Jesus was speaking, at the time, excuse me, that Jesus was speaking, these children had no rights, they had no privileges, no legal status, they had no voice whatsoever. Truly, in the ancient world, children were seen as almost non-people. They didn't matter, they didn't count. And so when Jesus took that small child in his arms, he essentially is telling us that we need to embrace those people who we deem don't count. He's taking the person of low esteem and telling us us that we should treat them as if they are kings and queens. Jesus blesses this child with his love, He doesn't judge the child. He gives this child his touch. And most importantly, and think about how limited Jesus' time was, and yet Jesus still made the time for that child. So clearly, we have to shift things around for us. So obviously, in our day and age, we're not talking about children because we know children are valuable. So who should we value? Who are these people then that Jesus is calling us to love? It's that person who's held in low esteem. It's that person who's out of place. It's that person who doesn't possess a voice. It's that person who's deemed worthless or irrelevant. The poor, the uneducated. It's the person who who speaks a different language. The person of a different race or a different nationality. The person whose lifestyle doesn't match our lifestyle. The person whose religion may not match our religion. It's the person who lives in the wrong neighborhood or goes to the wrong high school. When we love people the way that Jesus loved people, we grieve with them and joyfully sing over them the way that Jesus did. Many of us heard, by the way, the, about the shooting in New Zealand just this past week where 50 praying and practicing Muslims were shot and killed. And the massacre included women and children as those who were among the wounded. There were far more that were wounded than just the 50 who lost their lives. And the response, by the way, from Christian people has been perplexing. It's been interesting to see. Some have been prayerful. Others have been cold, I suppose, due to the tragedy. Brothers and sisters, while I do not validate Islam as a religion, 
I do validate the humanity of those that practice it. Crying and weeping with those who've been hurt and abused, even though they may not share the same religion as us, doesn't strengthen our faith. It weakens our faith. It displays who we are and the character of what's inside of us in a profound way, the way we treat others who are hurting and who've been damaged. After all, we want those folks who are in a lost and deceptive religion to come to know Christ, don't we? I mean, isn't that the goal? Don't don't we want people who are lost in a dead religion to see the compassion of our faith, to see Jesus living and working through us so that they could say, wait, there's something missing here, but that person seems to have it. We love them. We serve them in hopes that Jesus is seen in us. The other day I was at Chick-fil-A. Can I get an amen? Oh my goodness, I love Chick-fil-A. I love that company because that company has taken service to an entire just different level. I mean, it's a different level at Chick-fil-A. It is literally, did y'all know this? It is literally their pleasure to serve me. I love it. I don't even get that at home. It is their pleasure to serve me. They say it. They may not mean it, but they say it. It's their pleasure to serve the child, the adult, the senior adult, anybody, no matter what's going on in your life, you can come, and it's their pleasure to serve you at Chick-fil-A. Now, here's the question. Would people say that about the church? To, To really be specific. Would people say that about Eastern Shore Baptist Church? Are people finding better service, better assistance, more hospitality at Chick-fil-A than they are at the church? Lord, I hope not. I hope not. Remember, to find greatness, we must serve, but we also have to shift our mindset to that of a child, innocently saying yes to Jesus and faithfully serving him. John 13, 12 and 14 says, when they had washed their feet and put on their outer garments and resumed, and he resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for I am. If then your Lord and teacher has what? Washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. Serving the Lord. Last point is this, we should serve our fellow man. Greatness is revealed by when we shift our mindset. But lastly, Greatness is revealed in just simply modeling Jesus. Simply modeling Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples that in order for them to become great, they've got to become nothing. They have to take the form of a servant. They've got to do the dirty work, the thankless jobs, the menial task. They have to be willing to to take their dreams and their desires for their lives and place them as secondary in order that they would follow him. Whoever is least among you is going to be great. Can you imagine, by the way, the reaction of the disciples when Jesus said those words? I imagine they were like, come again, Jesus? What did you just say? They had in their minds what greatness was, and the greatness was power and money and authority. And I've always wondered why they felt so surprised at Jesus' words, because Jesus never modeled to them, not once, 
that those things were great. Not one of those things were ever great. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Tim Keller. By the way, uh, we're teaching a class uh, that Tim Keller wrote uh, about Lent um, starting soon in our Eastern Shore University classes. Lindsay Boney is going to be teaching that class. But Tim Keller is one of my favorite writers. He's one of my favorite pastors. He's a phenomenal uh, pastor. One of the uh, one of the staff members that works with Tim Keller is a guy named Scott Sauls, and he spent five years working with Timothy Keller. And Scott Sauls said this about Dr. Keller. He said, Tim is the best example I've ever seen of someone who consistently covers, covers with the gospel. Never once did I see Tim tearing another person down to their face or on the internet or through gossip. Instead, he seemed to assume the good in people. He talked about how being forgiven and affirmed by Jesus frees us for this, for catching people doing good instead of looking for things to criticize or be offended by. Even when someone had done wrong or been in error, Tim would respond with a humble restraint and self-reflection instead of venting negativity and criticism. As the grace of God does, he covered people's flaws and sins. Sometimes he covered even my flaws and my sins. He did this because that's what grace does. It reminds us that in Jesus we are shielded and protected from the worst things about ourselves. Isn't that neat? Because Jesus shields us like this, we should all people be zealous to restore reputations versus destroying reputations, to protect a good name versus calling someone a name, to shut down gossip versus feeding gossip, to restore broken relationships versus begrudging broken people. When I read this article about Dr. Keller, I was reminded essentially what is being said here is that Timothy Keller modeled Jesus, that his example was Christ-like. Modeling Jesus can have a powerful impact on the lives around us, and it can sow the seeds of the gospel in ways that our words alone can't do. So this morning, ask yourselves these questions. How am I living out the gospel? How am I living out the good news? Practically speaking, what am I doing to model the Jesus that I know from Scripture? And lastly, answer this question. Whose feet am I going to wash this week? Whose feet am I going to wash this week? Mark 10, 44 through 45, and whoever be the first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?